Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello, and welcome to The Thinking Leader. In this episode, we're going to be replaying some of the most powerful moments from the excellent conversations we've been having with our most loved and respected guests. You're going to be hearing from Rebecca Harding, Justin Foster, Captain David Marquet, Alex Pascal, and Rose Fass. So enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe. What do you mean by the weaponization of trade? The weaponization of trade is uh, the concept by which trade is being used as a tool in foreign policy. Now, you could argue that right since time in memoriam, trade has been used as a tool in foreign policy. But what makes this different now is the fact that we are in a position where um, the use of social media means that we can whip up a nationalist rhetoric around trade, we can whip up an economic nationalism around trade, and we can actually use trade as a tool to harness a political momentum behind what we're doing, which means that in an era where we've got a fairly tenuous nuclear peace at the moment, how do you gain influence? How do you gain power, influence, coercion over other countries? The simple way is by actually using your trade as a mechanism to influence other nations. And that's what we mean by it. So obviously, this has huge implications for geopolitics and foreign policy, but it also has big implications for businesses too, right? Exactly that, because it means that businesses are going to have to think about um, whether or not their markets still exist, whether they're still in a position to be able to um, work in a market. I mean, we've seen this happen with Iran. More recently, we've seen it happen with um, with Russia, obviously, and Belarus. But we've also seen it happen with China. Um, mm-hmm. So um, the extent to which technology companies can operate in China, obviously now the embargoes and everything that are operating with Russia, um, and we had it before with Iran. So the, the sanctions regime is now being used as a tool of coercion, the embargoes regime, the tariff regime. And it's really interesting, but foreign policy is actually being operated through the State Department and not through and the Commerce Department and not through not through um not through foreign policy at all or foreign policy mechanisms at all. It's interesting. One of the things that you've said in, in, in our conversations that I think is really interesting that is something that a lot of our listeners who are, who are business leaders should be thinking about is that businesses, as a result, willingly or unwillingly, have now been enlisted as foot soldiers in these, these great global conflicts like the ones going on right now in, in Eastern Europe and in Asia. Exactly. And and it's not just businesses, it's banks as well. So the entire commercial segment of the, if you like, military industrial complex has suddenly become industrial. Um, it's it's the industrial complex that's doing this. It's about um it's about the fact that they don't know when the next sanction is going to come along, they don't know um when the next embargo is going to come along, the next export control is going to come along, but they are charged with implementing these policies. And of course that 
affects their business models. So what they have to do, of course, is think about what's coming along that might create that instability, that might be an unforeseen consequence. And what you're seeing, one of the big unforeseen consequences at the moment, of course, is inflation, because we didn't realise exactly how how much um, sanctions and restrictions on oil and gas and so on were going to create inflationary pressures. That was never predictable in terms mm. of the amount that oil and gas coming out of Russia was going to then become weaponized itself and become a stranglehold on the global economy. That then creates instability for companies understanding how to price um, in different markets and price at home. But it also creates a political instability as well, because it begins to fragment the consensus around economics effectively as a domain of warfare. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Rebecca. And you talked early on how this social media frenzy has allowed this thing to become much bigger than it is and much quicker. And that very much ties into the hyperconnectivity that we talk about when we talk about VUCA, the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity of the world. A lot of people have added the H to that, to this hyperconnected that the world now is. And as before, we think about these things as we talked about geopolitical. But now what we're seeing is the cascade effect of that is moving through geopolitical, political, national, and into people's homes now. And as you said, with the recession coming and inflation, People are now fearful of this and often frenzied by what they're reading on social media and people are taking obviously false truths, misinformation, disinformation and creating often a moral panic with these things that are dominoes toppled a long way away, but quickly come into our real lives day to day and are clearly having an impact. I, th I think that point about moral panic is a really important one because you can create a moral panic around, well, President Trump did it with absolutely beautifully. You create a moral panic, you create an enemy, um, and you can do that through social media. You can do it with China. So you start to say China, um, and you begin to create um, a kind of consensus hatred against anything Chinese. You do it, you do it um, in any circumstance, and you can start to create economic enemies. And so the power of rhetoric almost to be able to steer that social media conversation and create um, that degree of populism, which is is there because people feel out of control. The problems that we have at the moment as a planet are out of the everyday control of people. The, the economic pressures they they face, they, the whole challenge of globalisation, in a sense, has been around making sure, well, the challenge of globalisation has been inequality, people feeling like they don't have equal access to the resources. There's been a priority placed on people from um, emerging economies is a sense and perception. So we need to bring these things back home we need to start thinking about um about how we nationalize those um those types of sentiment and the best way to do that is through trade because you can very easily you can say look right let's 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 make america great again let's have american products out there in the market you know the the whole british campaign around export is great you know and with the big union flags attached to it it's a it's a very 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 nationalistic campaign um and and by doing that you get people hooked into that trade framework you get people hooked into that nationalistic narrative and so they then begin to mistrust anybody from the other side um, and it creates enemies so right at the beginning of the Brexit campaign and if you look at the whole history of this over the last few years look at the Brexit campaign in the United Kingdom and the phrase was enemies across the table these are our European friends oh, no. right and these are, these are NATO partners these are and, and so you're sort of socializing that geopolitics and 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 
by by socializing it democratizing it in that way you're actually adding to the layers of risk associated with it because because you've created a populist momentum behind it dairy farmers know a lot more about productivity than traditional business leaders dairy farmers know that if you're kind to the cows they produce more milk (laughs) and it's true they they give them massages they pipe in music they have foot washers and and, and, and so everyone, the, you know, there's this brain kind of bloviating about like productivity and Taco Tuesdays and, you know, culture. And it's all this sort of, you know, word salad that doesn't really have any sort of integrated uh, belief system. And what they want is right. What they want to achieve, which is basically only two things in business, ultimately, is velocity and which is productivity, speed to market and then uh, productivity. So. If you have velocity and productivity, you're going to get something that will come from that. But velocity and productivity do not work if your people are not liberated. And this is my challenge. When I hear leaders talk about, well, our our our, our biggest asset, or our, our people are our biggest asset. And I'm like, man, they're not assets. They're not assets. So the only thing that matters. And my further rant on this is the reason that they view them as assets is they are that these leaders are disconnected from their hearts. And if you do not know how mm. to treat yourself, you do not know how to treat others. Um, as, the, as the greatest brander of all time said, you love your neighbor as yourself. I would paraphrase that to love your team member as yourself. So, And it's a two-way street, like you say. And there's, a, right. there's another thing that I would put in there that's also part of the secret sauce, and that's purpose. If right. you look at the organizations that are most successful, the organizations that really change the world, it's because it's because they, they have a team of people that's united by a sense of purpose to do that. And mm-hmm. that purpose can be something altruistic, it could be something even materialistic, but it's a mm-hmm. it's it's a purpose, you know. It's like, you know, if you go back and look at the early days of Atari, you know, mm-hmm. they weren't trying to 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 change the world in, in any sort of altruistic way but there was this this group of people that came around that company in its early days who saw that the potential of of digital entertainment and were like oh there's so much cool shit we could do Mm -hmm. and you know let's stay up late and work 18 hours a day to do it so we can get it to market fast and it wasn't because some boss was you know saying like i expect you to ship this video game in the next you know Mm-hmm. 30 days or you're all you know going to get docked to pay no it's because people wanted to and then if you look at a lot of times organizations like that over time atari i think ended up getting bought out by a bigger company and stuff and and then they imposed just the kind of standard you know productivity models on it and that you kind of crush all of that but right that's a, that's a key too isn't it purpose it is because i think it goes back to this is that innovation re- requires liberation you cannot, and you look at the mm. this, the scope of history, and you hear about like um, in World War II, what the, the Allied soldiers later in the war talking about like getting hit by bullets in the chest, and then they, or they would just they because they, the 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 slave labor, the Nazi slave labor had uh, shorted the powder in the bullets, um, and that was their mm. act of rebellion against the against tyranny. And, you know, that's a very stark and dark historical example, but is is that you look at where people are free to be themselves. This is why I'm a big fan of, 
anything that involves inclusivity and DEI and, and you know, I don't necessarily like woke washing businesses that kind of give lip service to this, but tr like sincere DEI, sincere uh, ESG initiatives, um, those type of things, what they're, what they're doing is they are liberating people to be themselves. And yeah. you, that's the great, like, in order to do that, in order to liberate people, they have to learn how to think for themselves, which means they're not yes. following some year-long strategic plan like good little robots. I mean, that's where, what, where red team thinking comes in. Is you, it's ultimately about, not to me, not just teaching people how to cut through the bullshit. It's how to create true libera liberation and true autonomy by allowing people to think for themselves. But especially if they're organized, like you said, Bryce, around a purpose. It's exponentially different. It's obviously different. And it, it, it's, it also gets to, to, you know, one of my favorite Eisenhower quotes, which is, you know, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. So mm -hmm. you come up with the strategic plan for a year, but you recognize that you don't know what the world's going to look like a year from now. You don't know what the world's right. going to look like these days, a month from now or a week from yeah. now. And so that plan is just a is just a guideline. So we say create a, a culture where people invite feedback. But like, let's be honest. Bryce says after, oh hey, Bubba, you're kind of you. Can I give you some feedback? The story you told was a little bit long. It's like I'll smile and say, oh yeah, oh thanks for that, Bryce. But the real deep down, I'm like, screw you, dude. Like, what do you know? <laughs> I was just listening to a, an, inter, an interview between Tim Ferriss and Tony Faddle, one of the great visionaries of Silicon Valley. Worked with Steve Jobs, you know, on the iPhone and all this stuff. And Faddle was saying. You have to know what type of asshole to be. Yeah. And, and he and he unpacked Good point. It and he yeah. said, if you're abusive, if you're putting people down, if you're belittling people, that's a bad asshole. But he said, if you care passionately about the product and you're gonna push people to get it right because that's what that's what the customers need, and and to execute the vision that you've all agreed to as a team and hold people accountable. You may have to act like an asshole sometimes yeah. to do that, but it's yeah. a different thing from just beating people about the the face and head. Yeah, I so I if I were to lay into that, I would say I was a process asshole, and I tried to, which allowed me to release being an outcome asshole. I think too many of the times <laughs> we have we 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 do it both ways, where we take we have randomized outcomes. I just say, imagine that your job, you're buying a lottery ticket and then you win the lottery. Say, oh, great job. You won the lottery. Good decision. And then you didn't win the lottery. Oh, bad decision. Like, well, it's a randomized outcome. Okay. So yeah. for me, and, and your ego is part of this too, because your ego attaches to the, likes to attach to outcomes. So then I say, oh, uh, oh, and back in 2005, I sold my house and then it was the, how, oh, how smart am I? But it was just a randomized, you you were just moving from San Francisco to Vegas and blah, blah, blah. And then you try and replicate that and it doesn't happen. And now you're all confused. Well, it was just a random outcome. So, but the process, we don't have control over the outcome. We have control over the process. And also, by the way, trying to hold people accountable for outcomes is the best sports teams try to be agnostic about whether you won or lost. They say, look, let's just. Like if you look at John Wooden stuff or um, Trevor Mawad, the coach psychologist stuff, sports coach, and it's about, look, let's just do what we have control over. It's about aligning your focus on what you can control. 
and re and release the rest. And I think accountability comes into it. You have to have accountability mm -hmm. on your team. When for you, the process, we, for the things you can control. For the process, exactly. Not for the outcome, for the right. process. Right. Yes. Well, here's, well, people say, well, how do you hold people accountable? Which is weird because I never really felt I had to. The, the reason we, we have that word is because we say things like this, Bryce. Okay, Bryce, you're going to deliver a 50,000 word manuscript in six months. You have this much thing. You have this many people on your team. You got this many resources. You can have this much quality. And then I'm going to hold you accountable when you didn't, you and you came short. Well, it's like, that seems unfair. I really didn't have control over any of the input variables. Like, then oh, COVID yeah. But, happened. Yeah, yeah. And then COVID <laughs> happened. I couldn't enter. No one wanted to get interviewed. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, but if you say, well, what did you do? Well, I just felt sorry about myself for six months and didn't do anything and get out of bed. Well, okay. Well, then maybe that's something we can talk about. But we would yeah. always try and hold people accountable for the process. I was talking to my son the other day. He's a lawyer in D.C., works for a nonprofit. And he's like, Dad, you ever make any goals for yourself? I said, no, never a one, which is sort of totally true. But I kind of wanted to push it a little bit. He's like, what? Really? He's like, yeah. I just said, I would just say, OK, if I want to do this. So let's say you want to retire with a million dollars. You can't control that. But I can right. control I'm going to save. 10% of my paycheck and, and it's going to automatically go even before I see it into an account that it's very hard for me to get the money out of. Um, and it's going to invest in a broad market index. And I'm just going to do that, do its thing. And then if the stock market crashes, well, you can't control it, but don't feel bad about the outcome because right. the process was correct. Yes. I love it. This is such great stuff, David. So many great pieces of advice for leaders in all of this. It's like a masterclass in leadership here. It really is. It is. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. We have been working together for now in earnest, gosh, um, almost a year on developing a red team coaching program in partnership with your company in partnership with coaching.com. And we just completed the first pilot program of that, which I understand was the best rated coaching pilot you guys have run yet. Is that true? Yeah. We've had a lot of pilots for programs and you guys were the highest rated pilot we've ever had, which is incredible because it's not, the typical coaching program or program for coaches. So I think you guys really accomplished something uh, incredible. And I'm, I'm so excited about this program. I, I, I'm very excited about coaching and its impact in the world. And I've always been very excited about red teaming and to put them together and equip coaches with these capabilities and perspective is I think incredibly yeah powerful. we we sensed that during the pilot didn't we Bryce the the caliber of the coaches obviously that came on were high 
But when they saw this capability and they started playing with the tools and getting to use them, you could see how the the power within those tools and in their hands, the light bulbs were coming on. They're like, wow, th- this is a whole new level of capability that's going to allow me to be a far more effective coach, a far more dynamic and responsive coach, but also how you can quickly help, which the whole purpose of these is to help their clients, their coachees to also understand these concepts that we're talking about, you know, suspending judgment, looking at things from a different perspective, altering your opinion and ego, which is often half the problem you're trying to battle against with coaches. But yeah, it's great to see. Great to see. And and how quickly they used it, yeah. started using this with their yeah. clients and, that, and, and, and how that was received. We had one coach in our program who came back after just two days of, uh, it was, he came back the more, the third day of, of the course. So just after two, two modules. And he said, I, I used this with one of my clients yesterday and not only was it amazing and led this executive to have this and this epiphany, but this executive is now asked me to train his entire team in this. And we're like, hold on just a second. <laughs> there, just slow, slow, slow down here. Let's, let's oh. walk before we, we run here. But that yeah. just like, he's like, I seriously, he's like, I, I, this guy's like, I need you to train my whole team now in this because that's how quickly the coaches were able to take this and use it and how quickly their clients yeah. were able to see the benefit of it. That's a good yardstick for successful training when you're able to apply it right away. So that was one of the most positive things I've heard that week while the pilot was going on. And it's a great indicator that there's a lot of value for the coaching community in using these tools. Um, again, I think we should measure the e- efficacy and effectiveness yeah. of training by saying, okay, how quickly are you implementing, that's, especially with implementers like purpose, coaches? With learning, training, right. instruction, yep. we sort of pride ourselves with, you know, trying to make all of our modules you know, easy to learn, instantly applicable with immediate efficacy. And if you get those three things, then the ROI that you can then get from that and the pace with which you can get it is exactly as you said, Alex, that's the perfect yardstick for me of quality training. And for organizations out there, when you have this plethora of training opportunities for your people and you've got to spend money on it, it's hard to choose the ones that are going to provide you with that ROI that you want. Because so often we talk to people where they get sent away on the standard two days training a year or whatever it is they're doing the program. And they come back and go, yeah, it might've been fun and I enjoyed the time away, but I'm not using what I've learned because it's not relevant or there's no efficacy in the organizational context. I'm trying to use this. So I think really helping coaches see that, helping clients see that and bringing those all together is where you really make that difference in coaching.com. I, this is something I really passionately believe in, you know, that you should, you should hold the, the companies that you bring in to train your people accountable for it, for an ROI on the investment that you're making. And I don't mean, you need to be able to say, well, we spent, you know, $2,000 on training and we got $3,000 in immediate here, here on our balance sheet is $3,000 that we gained from it. I mean, being able to see in a change in behavior, in a change of decision quality, in a change of leadership abilities, whatever it is, immediately. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's something that I, I have really made a principle ever since I started training people in this back in 2015, that everything we do has to be immediately applicable. And we've dropped tools from our training portfolio that are powerful tools 
but are so complex that they weren't immediately applicable. So, you know, one of the ones that I'm asked about a lot because people read about it in the book and, and, and it sounds kind of sexy is, is string of pearls analysis. And it's an incredibly powerful tool. It's actually probably the most powerful red team thinking tool that, that exists, but it takes, it takes a long time to train people how to do it. And it takes an even longer time to do it right. When the army does string of pearls analysis, sometimes they've taken a month to do one analysis, but the results are amazing. But I don't teach that anymore because I only taught it once. And the, the company that we taught it to was like, this is a lot to take in. You know, we're still trying to struggle to get our heads around this. And, you know, I would rather, I would rather put that on the shelf until we can figure out how to make that something that is immediately applicable and teach somebody something else that they are right. Right. Yeah. I learned that yesterday. I used it today. Here's what happened. Yeah. And that's important for the coaching context because um, coaches are working with people that are very busy and the coaching needs to be a quick hit, right? So sometimes, in fact, some really, you see that, especially at the kind of master level coach, sometimes coaches will have a 20 minute coaching session when they were scheduled for 60 because they hit on what they needed to hit on, the client's ready to go and implement and then report back on, on kind of what the uh, what's what are some of the what's the impact of that insight or that conversation and and being able to be dynamic as a coach is important um so the tools that are applicable for coaching from the red team um perspective i think are those that are streamlined yeah. right because people are busy um so i think i'm just super excited about what you guys are doing i've always been excited about red teaming um and the idea of having a large number of coaches go through the training and use it with clients. I mean, this is the kind of thing in, in this complex world that has impact. Huge. You know, it's like one little thing has a cascading consequence. And the coaches are really like vessels for development in the world because they go. That's the, that's the thing that drives me for the program side of our business, that you can partner with incredible thought leaders and create incredible learning experiences for coaches that then go and talk to you know thousands and thousands tens of thousands of people and you use these models and i think that is a catalyst for change and a lot of the change that we want to see in the world so that's why i think coaching is very powerful because coaches are agents of change they are absolutely agents of change and, and i love how and i've just got some feedback i'm going to read out in a minute from yesterday how coaches are these people who can go into organizations and slow them down in the way that it allows the organization to then accelerate, you know, cause everyone's going double quick. Everybody's got to be, you know, under the cosh of speed, we call it. And by doing that, they're not taking the time to observe, see what's going on. And in a complex world, that pace will cause you to fail. And there's a great comment here from a, last night, a lady who came through the last night class we did. doesn't take long to run a red team thinking session. Is it better to be fast or thoughtful and quick? And I thought that was brilliant. Is it better to be fast or thoughtful and quick? You got to slow down to speed up. I mean, that that is, yeah, that's absolutely. People always say, well, why are there, why is there no one good running for president? Why is there no one good running for prime minister? And you and I both know people who would make great presidents and prime ministers. And, and in some cases have even been asked to. 
and they're and 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 they and they they don't want anything to do with it because they see what a what a dumpster fire politics is and how impossible it is to have good meaningful conversations in the public space and so they say not for me i'm going to stick to business and so we're left in the public space with people who who are 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 so in most cases so hungry for for power or, or attention that they are willing to plunge into that mess, um, no holds barred. I think that's beautifully put, Bryce. And I think one of the things that you've always said, and I greatly appreciated it, is even in Ali Malali's case, and I, I think your book, The American Icon, is one of the best Thank business you. books I've ever read. I love it. Uh, and it read like a novel, and it was what attracted me to you in the first place, um, is that Alan went through a very vulnerable time. And when he went to the Senate and he realized uh, when he got there that he didn't want to be like those other CEOs, he wanted to do it differently. And you play that out so beautifully in your book. And I've, I've referenced it so many times everywhere I've gone uh, because that book is a conversation. It's a wonderful conversation. And red teaming right now is about helping people determine how to really take a strategy and bring it through to execution. You can't do that without conversations that are really substantive and sometimes right. conflicted. But a conflicted conversation doesn't mean it has to be a vitriolic conversation. And that's what I keep trying to push. It's not what's going on on the public stage. We see what's going on. It's disappointing to look at it um, because we look at these leaders and we'd like to look up to them. And you're right. I see people that would make wonderful presidents, but they did something in their past that will get unearthed. And before you know it, you know, they're not going to be the kind of people that will ever be able to survive it. Um, leadership is messy and we've got to be allowed to be messy. Look at Winston Churchill. He was yes, extremely absolutely. messy. And one of the greatest so leaders. One could argue. Yeah. And one could argue the fact that he saved civilization. So I, um, I look at Rosa Parks. I think of her silent yes. conversation, um, just not getting up. And the guy coming over and said, you will be arrested. And she said, you, you can do Absolutely. that. <laughs> you know, but I got to do what's right here. Um, and Zelensky yes. right now is, is the leader of our time. What was his conversation? Please, I don't need a ride. Help me save my. I'm going to hang right here and everybody followed that leader. They're coming from all over the world to support him. And Ukrainians who are living all over the world, putting their lives in danger, making bold change one conversation at a time. I think he's remarkable. And a master of conversation, as you say. I mean, he is in, in many ways, next to his personal courage, his, his superpower is, is the way he frames oh. conversations. And I've been struck by this when in the early weeks of the war when he was going and addressing the leaders and the parliaments, the congresses of all the countries, he was so careful to speak to each one in their story. You talk about stories, you know, when he spoke to the British, he spoke with reference to the, to the Blitz. When he spoke to, you know, uh, the United States, he spoke about freedom from tyranny. When he spoke you know, every country he spoke in their narrative and about to their story and tied their story to the Ukraine, the story of Ukraine. 
and you could see how it just it just like cut through and 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 went right to people's hearts and made them act amazing and what you've just described Bryce he went to the concern that every one of those customers had uh, yeah. countries had lived through and he established just a common worldview yep. among all of them to finally get them to level up to what he needed to do um, that is an extraordinary gift. Not everybody has it. Uh, I will say that in our book, um, we teach people how to have those conversations. We teach people how to navigate them, how to have a difficult conversation without creating yes. an enemy, how to, how to sustain a relationship at the same time, having a different point of view. Um, and it's, it's important. And I believe that everybody needs I'm still a student of it. I'm a student of leadership. Um, I'm, as I said, 73 years old, I'm still learning. And I really value leaders who care about this stuff uh, and take it seriously. And when you're doing your red teaming, it's a series Absolutely. of conversations right. to an end point. We need that. We need that. And people don't understand that the art of a really good conversation like the one you described with Zelensky, it's so artful. It's so wonderful. And why? Because right. he prepared. He didn't do a flyby. He prepared in the same way Gandhi did when he stood Absolutely. up in front of Parliament. This is the kind of stuff that we need people to want to do. So while everybody's uh, dealing with methods and tools and process and all the rest of it, all important, that's all about management, but leadership is all about conversation. That's what I keep telling people. You manage the work, I you lead that. people. You can't manage people. They do not want to be managed. I hate being managed. Um, and But they do want to be well-led. And let everybody manage their own work. Have a good conversation and let everybody else manage their own work. The reason you have to jump in and manage other people's work, because you didn't have a good conversation. Wasn't clear. They didn't know what to do. Now you're in there doing Great it. Great advice, Rose. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode. There, you'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.